cue fake podcast music. Da 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 da. da. Oh, hello and welcome to Michigan and Other Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, and other random mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie and Jen. And today we are going to talk about, I think, both murder, huh? Yep. I have the burning bed, which was a, a case of a battered woman syndrome. <clears throat> the husband received a burning bed in. <laughs> it's how she resolved the issue in the end. There you go. What about you? I have the murder and dismemberment of Tara Grant. All right. You want to go first or do you want me to go to first? I don't care. I'll go first. All right. I actually was listening to this podcast the other day. And they keep count of who goes first, so that they keep it even, switching it back and forth. We're not that together. Yeah, but I don't really care. Yeah, and I was thinking, I was like, that'd be one more list. And you know, I'm already listed out. Right? You are the queen of lists. Don't, don't say anything, I'll make another list. Oh, boy. <laughs> All, right. All right. Tell me. So, this was Valentine's Day 2007, Michigan, Macomb County. Okay. Stephen Grant, um... Something. He's something. An asshole? He's a husband. murderer. He's, <laughs> he's creepy <a>, neighbor. <laughs> he's the husband okay, of Tara Grant. Okay. So Stephen goes to the police Valentine's Day 2007 to report his wife missing. Mm. Yeah. So he did it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> he tells them a story that they got into an argument because Tara said she was flying out for work early, earlier than she had told him. She works in Puerto Rico. So she oh, wow. flies to Puerto Rico, works, flies home on the weekends. Okay. She packed a small bag that night, left in a vehicle, and this was February 9th she left. Okay. Okay. He reported her missing to Macomb County Police Valentine's Day. So when he wasn't getting calls from Puerto Rico and stuff, didn't he? You would think. You would think. During this time, between the 9th and the 14th, Stephen had reached out to Tara's parents, her boss, looking for her. Oh, he was but looking. He, yeah, but nobody had heard from her. And so he's like, let me wait a good solid five, six days, five days, mm -hmm. and then report her missing? Yeah. Okay. The detective spoke with people Tara knew and their family au pair. I didn't even know what that was. Oh, it's a I fancy, isn't it a fancy nanny? It's a, usually a young foreign person, typically a woman, who helps with housework and child care in exchange for room and board. That young lady was 19. Yeah. It's important to keep in mind. As I say, a young, foreign, beautiful 19-year-old girl? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> the police found it was unusual behavior for Tara just to up and leave and not talk to anyone. She had children. Okay, yeah. So completely seemed to have abandoned everything. They found, also found that she never moved her plane ticket and never used the ticket she had. So he said she moved the plane ticket, but it was moved, but never used. It was never moved. The plane oh, ticket was never... never moved. Okay, so he lied about the moving part even. She said she was going to leave her flight early, supposedly. But Not him. Yeah. And he told the police that. Yeah, because he's a lying fuckface. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the police at this point were focused on the dark colored vehicle that her husband had said she left in. That, at this point, they don't think he's a suspect whatsoever. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. The husband's all, always did it. Well, always, especially when she's been missing. You don't report her for five days. Yeah, like you're worried enough to call her parents, but not call the police. Yeah. yeah. I, well, I wondered why her parents didn't call the police. 
Good question. Stephen Grant was cooperating with police, but after the family attorney got involved, his cooperation stopped. Oh, that's a bad sign. Yeah. This made the police suspicious of the <laughs> husband. The police found there was no activity on her credit cards or bank accounts. At this point, we know darn well she's murdered, but yep. they keep saying she's alive. Nope, no, no, it's time to look for a body. The only activity was messages on her cell phone from her husband. Of course, because that's what they do. <laughs> right? They called all taxi services, car rentals, and car services for the airport. Uh -huh. No one had recorded picking up Tara from her home. And this, of course, put more suspicious, you know, suspicion on the husband. Because there was no black car because you murdered her yeah. in her body somewhere. They wasted days. Uh, okay. Well, you, you have to. You have to be able to say, we checked everywhere no. and she was not picked up. They should just start with the husband. <laughs> Macomb County holds press conferences to get support from the area citizens. At the same time, the husband is holding his own press conferences. And mind you, he's not talking to the police at all. But he's holding press conferences? He's holding his own press conferences, which assisted the police because then they could analyze his demeanor, what he's saying. Yeah, and isn't that one of the things of, like, a psychopath? They feel like they'll never get caught. They're smarter than everybody. Yeah. Yeah. He did seem generally distraught by his wife being missing, but these conferences led to more people thinking that there was foul play Oof. and that he had something to do with it. Okay. I mean, ultimately, it seemed at this point she had just fallen off the face of the earth. Yeah, so. which means dead. Um, so people started questioning his responsibility and her disappearance, and the police started surveillance on him. Oh, so they really think it's him now. Yeah. Okay. Well, and so the surveillance showed him, like, going to this gas station every day, picking up all three newspapers, oh. you know, so he's trying to figure out what's... What the cops what know. What do the cops know. Oh, wow. So it starts to pick up steam, you know, it goes cold for... A hot minute and then a former girlfriend provides emails to the police that Stephen had sent to her just prior to Tara's disappearing these emails were sexual and make suggestions that his wife was having an affair this made the police question if there was a relationship with the au pair so they believe so he's being sexual with his ex-girlfriend they're like would he try the same thing with the young girl mm -hmm. that happens to live in his house when his wife's not around yeah yeah. The young lady denied it, but it was odd because the after the conversation with the cops, the company that the au pair worked for brought her back to her original original country, which I think was Germany. So she left the States? Yeah. yeah. Uh, like, so that was interesting. That is interesting. The police start to do searches in places that the family visited often. One place was the Stony Creek Park near the home. They were trying to find something to tie Stephen to the disappearance so they could get a search warrant on the house. The police didn't find anything at this point at the park. So I they think I've been it. to Stony Creek. I think I used to like smoke pot there in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I've been to a place where someone was murdered. Someone, well, their body. I'm sorry, their body was their found. Their body. Yeah. She might have been murdered somewhere else. She was. Oh, damn. Okay, keep going. So, <laughs> yeah. they didn't find anything. Goes cold. They have nothing. They continue to reach out to the community, trying, but they're just hitting all these dead ends. They caught a break when a person was out for a walk in a nearby park. 
they came across a plastic bag which contained latex gloves, plastic, and blood. Oof. That's not a good combo. No. This was, like, right by his house. So, there's the Stony Creek Park, but yeah. it's like a park outside of a park. Okay. But it's really close to the Still close the to his house. Okay. Enough for them to get probable cause to get a warrant. Ooh. So, they go and do that, and on March 2nd, the police enter the Grant home and Stephen's um, business that he has with his father. Okay. And so they go in, they search the home, and in the garage they found a bin. Inside the bin they found the dismembered body of Tara Grant in black trash bags. So she's still in a trash can. In the gar garbage? Part, part of her is there. It's her torso. You couldn't get rid of it this Okay, time? well, so you wonder. Like, they yeah. already... So when this first started and he was cooperating, yeah. the police went through his house. Oh. Yeah. So the police had went through his house, at, you know, looking around, you know, not like a, a full-blown search. Yeah. But they noticed that this new trash bin was in the garage, and they remember it not being there before. And they looked. Ah. So how this happened was... Oh, yeah, I can't tell you that yet. Oh, that's okay. I can't tell you. Yeah, you gotta wait. Okay. You gotta wait. All right, but there's all right. a story behind how that just reappeared. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stephen Grant was found up north at a local park two days after they found Tara's body. After his arrest, he admits the two of them got into a fight, and he pushed her into the wall, and, and she said things like, you know, you're never going to see your children again. I'm going to yeah. get a divorce. Yeah. And he pushed her down and strangled her to death. Oh, I thought you were about to say, like, he pushed her down, she fell down the steps, and somehow died. But no, nope, he no, strangled, strangled her. her. Okay, that's not an accident death. You gotta, yeah. Strangling takes a long yeah. time. And after, after she died, he yeah. put her in the trunk of the car. But how he got her there was he explained he wrapped a belt around her neck and drug her down the steps into the car. So he didn't carry her. He just, like... Drug her body by the neck. Strangled her, then got a belt, and then just dragged at her dead body through the house. By her neck. The garage. Yeah, by her neck. Yeah. Oh, my God. He admitted that he had a sexual relationship with the au pair. He took Tara's body to his father's machine shop a day later and cut up her body using saw blades at the business. He puts her body in black bags and hides them at the park by the home. When he heard the police were searching the park, he went back because he didn't think he hid the torso well enough. So he brought it back, not to the house, to his father's business, machine shop and put it above the office. <gasps> but then he knew he couldn't leave it there forever. So he took it back, put it in the trash can and put it in the garage and had planned I'm disposing of it the next day. Oh. But entered the warrant that evening. The police came. Oh, my God. They're so, so lucky. If they, yep, if they were a day later, oh. you know, she wouldn't have been there. Stephen was charged with first-degree murder and mutilation. He pleads guilty to mutilation yeah. and goes to trial for the murder charge because he didn't think that it should be first-degree murder because it was done in the heat of the moment. The prosecutor disagreed because he had a chance to stop what he was doing. Yeah. He was found guilty of second-degree murder, and the judge sentenced him to 50 years. Yeah. 
Yeah, I went to my, I can't remember how many minutes, but it actually takes a really... They say, I think it was three minutes. Is it three minutes? Yeah, to choke somebody. You had three minutes to decide to let go. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And he chose to keep holding on. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I see, like this lady here, you have to burn a bed sometimes. Yeah. It was a big story. Yeah, now that you said that, once you got to the au pair involved, I was like, oh yeah, I do remember that. I do remember the au pair. I had been watching YouTube videos and came across it, and I remembered the name. And I was like, oh, let me watch this. I didn't realize it happened in Michigan. I didn't realize it happened in Michigan either. Yeah, so. yeah you know, you had me watching the Crime Watch Daily lately on YouTube. I love that. And they got me the other day. I'm like, oh, here's a little short video. I'll just watch it real quick. No, it was one of six. Okay. Yeah, but there is. And the husband did do it, by the way. <laughs> okay. I know, right? He always does it. Yes. But you know they're short, though. Yeah. Oh, no, they were actually like five minutes. Oh, see? Six minutes, seven minutes. Yeah, I don't know why they break it up like that. Yeah, and they're, well, I'm like, you know what, if it was really long, I'd probably be like, I don't have a half an hour, but no, I sat there (laughs) clicking it for a half an hour, though. You don't realize, I'm going to kill a bug. Everybody, I'm going to kill a bug. Oh, (laughs) that was murder. I murdered a bug. I hope that wasn't a stink bug. (laughs) I don't, I never even seen that. Before. Oh well, we won't we see it again. That was a big book. <laughs> I almost fell. <laughs> oh this is why we don't record we video. Just, exactly. <laughs> okay, what's yours? All right, mine is the following real life case was made into a nonfiction book called The Burning Bed that was adapted to a TV movie in 1984, and it starred Farrah Fawcett in the lead role. Farrah Fawcett. Oh, I thought she was the stuff in yeah. man. Oh, she was so pretty. I watched it in 1984, and I remember the abuse scenes in it, like, affected me. I was terrified for her, even though I knew, like, she was an actress and these events that were real, but they were already past. Like, I was terrified. I mean, he just terrorizes his family. And when did you get married? The first time? Yeah. 2001. So you watched this and still wanted a date? And get married. I've been okay. married twice now because I married your brother. I know, you're crazy. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, so Francine Hughes was born August 17th, 1947 in Stockbridge, Michigan. Her mother was a homemaker and her father was a farmer. And he was also an abusive alcoholic. Because I always wondered, like, how, how could you let yourself, like, get in this situation? But she grew up in this situation where there was a dad. You know, her only male figure, her father figure, is a... a an alcoholic who beats his wife and yeah, daughter. Yeah, which makes her think it's right. Yeah, or normal. Normal. Yeah. So, Francine was only 16 years old when she met her boyfriend, James Mickey Hughes, and Mickey was 18 years old. And the one thing I always wonder is, like, how do you get Mickey from James? Yeah. I don't understand. I, I don't get it. The Yeah, I just yeah, weird. That is weird. And shortly after Francine left high school to become his wife on November 4th, 1963... Just a couple weeks after they're married, Francine came home wearing new clothes, came home, you know, to her husband. And something about that triggered Mickey that she was wearing new clothes. And he, you know, just went into this rage and tore her clothes off her and just beat the stuffing out of her. And she apologized for the mistake. Of wearing new clothes. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know what was wrong, but, you know, I was like, I'm sorry. You know, just trying to get him to calm down or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just felt, I'm like, just that story makes me feel terrible. Yeah. So they moved to Dansville, Michigan, and they went on to have four children together. Christy, Jimmy, Dana, and Nicole were born into poverty in a house of anger, alcohol, and abuse. 
to give you an idea of the age range of the kids, Christy is 10 years older than Nicole. So Christy, the oldest, is 10 years younger than Nicole, the youngest. And Francine tried leaving Mickey several times. Like her father, Mickey was an alcoholic who would fly into a rage, terrorizing his family. She moved out of the home that she shared with Mickey when their divorce was finalized, April 1971. Mickey was known to break into her house and refused to leave, often battering her while she was there. So even though they didn't live together, he was still terrorizing her in her own home. Hmm. And that summer, Mickey was involved in a serious car crash and severely injured. Sometimes alcoholics crash their cars. We know this. Yep. Yep. And he fell into a short-term coma. <clears throat> Francine, she was like reluctant, but was kind of like peer pressured and felt like she should allowed him to move back in while he recuperated. Why? They're divorced. I know. But I think it's like the mentality so back I think in the it, day. I think at that point, though, yeah. you just made a choice. Like, you left. Yeah. Well, I feel like, like sometimes why? When, when you're in a cycle of abuse, even when you leave, sometimes you get pulled back in because you see that happen to people. But it, it's just, it always escalates. Don't worry. It gets okay. taken care of. <laughs> After the accident, Mickey refused to look for a job. He recovered from the accident and the abuse began again, but now he's escalated. And Mickey killed, I added this just to show you what type of a demon this man is. Mickey killed a kitten that belonged to one of his daughters. I'm like, you oh, killed a kitten? Cat killer. Any type of baby animal that is killed for no reason, it just makes you automatically like demonized. Yeah. His drinking became worse as the beatings and humiliation of her became more savage. And there were times Francine would call the police for help. And sometimes she would try to escape to her parents' house. And Francine feared that if she tried to leave Mickey again or have him removed from her house, that he would have he would kill her. So she's afraid to try to leave permanently again because he's just gone so far over the top now. Mm -hmm. But during all this turmoil, Francine was working to obtain her GED. So she's like still trying to do better, but is like terrified of leaving this guy. In 1976, she enrolled in a secretarial course um, working to find independence. So she's hoping to get a good job. Mm -hmm. So March 9th, 1977, things in the Hughes house came to a head. Francine came home from her classes to find an angry and drunk Mickey. Mickey screamed in anger, punched her, pulled her hair, and broke dishes as he raged at her. Their children hadn't eaten all day. Mickey hadn't fed them. So Francine quickly gave, uh, made them TV dinners. And this triggered Mickey. He, had, he calls her a slut and reminds Francine that he had forbidden her from making frozen dinners. I don't know why, but... Now okay. he's, yeah, now he's totally triggered. He threw the food on the floor and bent her arm behind her back to force her to the ground to clean it up. And as soon as she was done, he threw the food on the floor again. And he also rubbed it in her hair, continuing um, with threats of more abuse as he did it. Mickey forced Francine to burn her school books and threatened to take a sledgehammer to her car if she didn't quit school. Police came to the scene at one point during the altercation, but refused to arrest Mickey as he did not beat her in front of them. So she's been obviously what? beaten. Yes, but she was not beaten in front of them, so they leave him. Is they, that true? Yes. They did hear Mickey. This is all, like, from the court papers. They did hear Mickey threaten with her with additional violence before they left. So he's like, when the cops leave, I'm going to give it to you worse. And they left. They're like, well, he, you know, you didn't hit her in front of us, so there's nothing we can do. So they can't do anything to help someone if they don't see us. That's what a cop in 1977 just um, said. Yeah. yeah. So... <clears throat> before passing out uh, out in their bed, he demanded sex from her and he rapes her. And as he slept, she gathered up the three children she had at home. Dana was visiting with a friend. And she had them get into their winter coats and she bundled them into the car. Francine said she heard a little voice tell her to, quote, do it, end quote. 
She headed back to the house and poured gasoline around her marriage bed where Mickey was sleeping off his drunken stupor and then tossed a match on it. Turning around, she walked back out of the house and got into the car with her kids. And Francine said, quote, I was calm as though I was doing an ordinary thing. I felt very light, clear-headed, free. This was the easiest thing I had ever done, end quote. And I think, I, I think it's just like when you're in jail and you see the key and you're like, I'm just going to use it to let myself yeah. out. And who cares if the key is a burning bed, you know? <laughs> Francine immediately drove to the Mason, Michigan police station and told them what she had done in the house. And she was charged with first-degree murder. During the trial, she was found not guilty by reason of temporary insanity. It was one of the first successful uses of the battered woman syndrome defense used in court. And this syndrome is said to often resemble PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, yeah, you got your ass beat. Yeah, well, you're in this stressful Forever. environment constantly. It's like being a soldier at war. Like, you never know. You might get killed, just like a soldier at war. You are constantly being harmed physically. So the TV movie, The Burning Bed, was a critical success. I actually even remember that, and I was like nine at the time. Now I'm going to have to look it up. Oh, you have to watch it. And it was well received by the public. It brought domestic abuse to the spotlight. It was like accredited, it was, you know, credited with really helping women talk about the fact that they're being abused. And when the movie came out on TV in 1984, Mickey Hughes' mother, Flossie Hughes, refused to watch it. She claimed that Francine wasn't telling the story as it had truly happened. And even if the movie portrayed the events exactly, Flossie said she wouldn't watch it. She believed it would only upset her. Well, yeah. She's in denial. Your son was a horrible, terrible person who abused his wife and children and killed a kitten, damn it. I mean, that's just the worst. So I do have a link to a small article and pictures of the burned home at the bottom of the show notes. So he probably was so drunk he didn't even wake up. He didn't. And then he probably actually died from... Maybe not the, I mean, flames do kill people, but usually die from smoke inhalation first. I'm getting the feeling he probably slept through that. Yeah, I'm thinking he did. And just, like, woke up in hell or something. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Flossie. That's freaking crazy. (laughs) Right? So you've been listening to Michigan and Other Mayhem with Allie. And Jen. Connect with us at michiganandothermayhem to join the, oh, dot com. michiganandothermayhem.com. To join the conversation, listen to the podcast, access show notes, find site links, and correct us when necessary. Rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Anchor, and YouTube. Bye-bye now.